while many people, it seems like, are going back to their normal lives, the folks here in Minneapolis are not. We are at ground zero. Nearly three years after the murder of George Floyd, Minneapolis is working through changes in how the police operate. For Saturday, May 13th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. Coming up, an economic crisis in Egypt is making it hard for people to afford food. Plus, we break down the conflict in Sudan, what it means for the region and for the world. Nobody has an interest in the destabilization of Sudan. Whatever they may think of this general or that general, nobody wants to see a complete collapse of Sudan. And our friends at Pop Culture Happy Hour have some thoughts on what makes a truly great TV series finale. I love a true ending. I don't necessarily want my favorite shows to be rebooted if they end on that perfectly satisfying note. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden delivered the commencement speech at the graduation ceremony for Howard University in Washington, D.C. NPO's Franco Ordonez reports he told graduates that white supremacy is the country's domestic threat. President Biden took a swipe at his predecessor, reminding graduates that he was inspired to run for office following former President Donald Trump's response to the 2017 white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. I say wherever I go, to stand up for truth over lies, lies told for power and profit, to confront the ongoing assault, to subvert our elections, suppress our right to vote. Biden's remarks come less than a month after he announced his 2024 re-election bid, and he'll need to turn out black voters. The president touted the funding he secured for historically black colleges and universities like Howard, and he attacked Republicans for opposing his student loan relief efforts. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The debt ceiling standoff was on the minds of finance ministers of the group of seven industrialized nations who wrapped up a three-day meeting in Japan today. They did agree to remain vigilant about shocks to the global economy, as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports. A communique from the meeting in Niigata City noted that the global economy has shown resilience in the face of shocks from COVID and inflation associated with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The document promised unwavering support for Ukraine from financing and reconstruction to enforcing sanctions on Russia. The communique, though, made no mention of the possible default of the world's largest economy, which Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned the meeting could trigger a global economic downturn. The statement also mentioned diversifying global supply chains. The U.S. is pushing for diversification away from China, but the communique made no mention of China. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Rome today for a private meeting with Pope Francis. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports the Pope has said he has his own plan to end Russia's war on Ukraine. Zelensky also met with Italy's President Sergio Mattarella and Georgia Maloney, the Prime Minister. Maloney has staunchly supported Ukraine despite resistance from her own government, including former Italian Premier Silvio Berlusconi, a close friend of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Maloney met Zelensky in Kyiv earlier this year. Pope Francis last met the Ukrainian leader in 2020. The Pope is eager for the war to end and has decried the death and destruction it's caused in Ukraine. But Ukrainians criticize the Pope for trying to placate Russia and blaming the invasion on NATO expansionism. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. And Zelensky heads to Germany tomorrow. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Mayor Wu is proposing a redistricting map that she says unifies neighborhoods within council districts. A federal judge earlier this week rejected Boston's previous map. Wu believes her plan will be approved by the courts because it meets requirements of the Voting Rights Act. There is a map on the table that has been reviewed by some experts already on this front um, alongside the parameters that the court decision has set out and communities and, and neighborhoods that represent Boston. The mayor wants the city council to act at its next meeting on Wednesday. Wu says a plan needs to be signed by the end of the month to allow the city's election department enough time to prepare for the September 12th preliminary. Mass General Brigham says its finances are improving. The state's largest health system reports it nearly broke even in the second quarter of its fiscal year. The same quarter last year, Mass General Brigham reported a $193 million loss. Health systems and hospitals were hit with significant losses during the pandemic. A small community park with free food available for harvest is now open in Mattapan. This is Boston's 10th food forest to be opened by the Boston Food Forest Coalition. Chair of the Edgewater Neighborhood Association, Vivian Morris, says there's something for everyone. So there are pear trees, there are pawpaw trees, there are cherry trees. If they came into the food forest and see that they look ready to take, then we say, please take them. Mayor Wu was on hand for today's opening. She says creating free food for everyone is central to people's needs. The morning disruption on the red line in Cambridge is being blamed on faulty third rail wiring in the Central Square station. Shuttle buses replaced service between Davis and Park Street, while firefighters responded to reports of smoke. Trains then operated on a single track in one direction between Elwife and Harvard until repairs were completed. In the forecast, clear around 50 overnight. Tomorrow, Mother's Day, sunshine near 70. Right now in Boston, it is 79 degrees. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. It's been nearly three years since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Earlier this month, the last of the four police officers involved in Floyd's death was convicted, marking the end of multiple state and federal trials. Floyd's killing sparked mass protests and a push for racial justice. Now, Minneapolis is getting ready to start a complex process it hopes will overhaul the city's troubled police department. Minnesota Public Radio's John Collins reports. It's a cold, rainy day outside the Minneapolis Police Department's 3rd Precinct. Scorch marks are still visible on the abandoned building. It's one of many that was set afire during the unrest following George Floyd's death, and it's been empty ever since. While many people, it seems like, are going back to their normal lives, the folks here in Minneapolis are not. We are at ground zero. Aisha Smith is executive director of the Corcoran Neighborhood Organization, located in the 3rd Precinct. We have not even begun to truly explore what does healing look like. 
That is a central question for a city that was the epicenter of protests against police brutality and where there's been deep-seated distrust between police and many residents. After Floyd's death, a state investigation found that Minneapolis police engaged in routine discrimination, especially against Black residents. Police were more likely to arrest and use severe force against Black people. What came of that investigation was an agreement brokered between the State Department of Human Rights and the city. When the settlement was announced, the city's new police chief, Brian O'Hara, said the department recognizes that terrible things happened in the past and it will embrace change. The hard work is just beginning. But I believe at the end of this process, Minneapolis will have the best police department in the nation. Our city will be safer. And the police and all communities of this city will be more united than ever before. The agreement includes guideposts for officer use of force policies and more community oversight. These types of changes are steps that several other police departments in the country are also promising to take because of consent decrees negotiated with the U.S. Department of Justice. Legal experts say the Minneapolis agreement is an unprecedented step, though, for a state to take. Former U.S. Labor Secretary Tom Perez, who helped enforce federal consent decrees, calls the Minneapolis plan impressive. I think it's really important for agreements to be court enforceable, because if you don't have an agreement that's court enforceable, you don't have an agreement that's going to have staying power. And this agreement has it. For decades, Michelle Gross has been pushing for police reform. She's head of Communities United Against Police Brutality and says she knows the agreement requires Minneapolis to collect and share more data on everything from officer misconduct to the race of drivers pulled over by officers. It also limits traffic stops for minor violations like a burned-out headlight. Gross says what's key will be the independent monitor who will chart the city's progress. The monitors are really the secret sauce for whether a consent decree is worth anything or not. You can put everything on paper and say, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But if you don't have any way to make sure it actually happens, then it's just a piece of paper. Gross says the agreement addresses issues that residents have been bringing up for a long time and that lives would have been spared if city officials had acted earlier. The changes could take years and are expected to cost the city millions of dollars. In addition, the Minneapolis Police Department is also under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. Legal experts say any ensuing federal consent decree would likely strengthen and expand on the state's effort to create a new way of policing in the city. For NPR News, I'm John Collins in Minneapolis. We turn now to Egypt, where an economic crisis has made it difficult for people to afford food. Much of the country's grain comes from the Black Sea region, now in turmoil with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Then there's Egypt's own currency crash and high inflation. NPR's Aya Batrawi reports that charities are straining to help fill the gaps. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Hassisi arrives by motorcade to Cairo's main open-air stadium. He's here for a state-orchestrated ceremony broadcast on TV to honor the many local charities helping stave off hunger across Egypt. Tens of thousands of volunteers from these charities have packed the stands. Patriotic songs are playing as the volunteers cheer and wave Egypt's red, white, and black flag. The government uses the moment to roll out a new initiative called El Ketf Fikitf, or Shoulder to Shoulder. The slogan has an upbeat song the crowd is swaying to. 
At its core though, this initiative is a call for help. Egypt's currency has lost half its value compared to the dollar in just the past year. That's made it harder for the government to import affordable wheat from Russia and Ukraine, where the war has also driven up prices. Bread from that wheat forms the backbone of Egyptian diets. The country's been pushed deep into debt. Critics blame years of poor planning in Egypt and overspending on superfluous projects that benefited military-owned businesses. The president tells volunteers, global economics are to blame. Everyone is playing an incredible role at this difficult time. I had to come and thank you for all you do and all you will do in helping to make this major crisis faced by the world and by Egypt a little easier. The government is increasing food subsidies by more than 40% this year. But Sisi's message is clear. Egypt's challenges are not for the government alone to shoulder. Everyone is responsible. His government is under pressure as food prices in Egypt climb by more than 60%. Young couples in Cairo are delaying marriage because they can't afford a wedding or home. Middle-class families struggle to buy eggs and chicken. Tens of millions of families stay afloat with help from charities, like this one in the poor Cairo suburb of Altamaya. It's where I meet Fatma Hassan. She says her grandkids want chicken and meat, but it's too expensive. Hassan laughs as she tells me how she and her daughter often end up cooking a dish of stuffed vegetables with rice called mahshi. She can't afford lentils these days either and tells me, who needs that anyway? And what are we going to do? We aren't going to steal. The government gives her some cash aid every month, and donors help her buy the medicine she needs. Every little bit helps. Hassan comes to this charity office twice a year for a box of food that lasts her household a little over a week. Inside are what's become little luxuries that help create a balanced diet. Dates, rice, cooking oil, lentils, pasta, tomato sauce, sugar and tea. The food was packed by the Egyptian Food Bank, one of the largest non-governmental charities in the country helping tackle food insecurity. At their headquarters in Cairo, conveyor belts seal bags of fava beans grown locally as well as imported products like macaroni. And then uh, the workers, they fill the boxes. It's supported mostly by private donations and a network of 5,000 community-based organizations across the country. They have a massive database of families in need, but even its operations have been strained. Egypt Food Bank CEO Mohsen Sarhan says donations are up by 20%. Still, it's not enough to keep up with inflation. The future is very hard to predict, and whatever scenarios you put, it tends to break down the next day. We're playing it by the ear somehow. We're operating on a very flexible budget, and we adjust it sometimes weekly. It's up to charities in Egypt to try and plug gaps in the government's stretched safety net. But Sarhan says they can't eradicate hunger. I think it was uh, three years ago that we realized that this is never going to happen. What they can do, he says, is to try and make people's lives a little better. And the government is now signaling that everyone is going to have to shoulder more of that work. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Cairo. Brazil's queen of rock, Hita Lee, passed away this week. She was 75 years old. NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento has this appreciation. Hita Lee once told a Brazilian newspaper that her band, Os Mutanchis, quote, came from another planet to take over the world. 
That's kind of what it sounded like. Kita Lee Jones Chicarvalo was born in Sao Paulo. Her mother's side came from Italy. Her father descended from American Confederates who fled the South after the Civil War. But Lee became known for progressive politics as much as for music. She played the piano from an early age and co-founded Os Mutanchis as a teenager in the 1960s. Combining rock, psychedelia, and pan-Latin rhythms, the tripped-out trio formed part of the Tropicalia movement. It was a countercultural scene that flourished during Brazil's military dictatorship. Lee told the New York Times in 2001 that artists had to, quote, be creative but evasive to avoid the repression. Montana Ray, a Spanish and Portuguese translator who teaches at NYU, says Lee refused to conform at a time when the regime demanded it. She was really central to that movement and was hounded by the apparatus of the state police. Lee left the band in 1972 for a solo career. She said she was, quote, in search of Brazil, Brazil, Brazil. As a pop star, she broke boundaries in the way she explored sex, politics, and religion. In 2021, when diagnosed with lung cancer, she joked about naming her tumor after then-President Jair Bolsonaro. Montana Ray says Lee's outspokenness set her apart. That was not kind of the template of womanhood pop stars when she came into the world, and that's sort of what she's leaving us with, which is amazing. Her death comes less than a year after the passing of Gal Costa, another feminist pillar of Tropicalia. Montana Ray says they continue to inspire generations of artists in Brazil during another time of political turmoil. It feels like a precarious time and they're very, I think their legacy is needed. Tributes poured in for Lee this week. Brazil's cultural minister, musician Margaret Menezes, called her a revolutionary woman. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for choosing WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Stay with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. BU.edu slash SSW. And Farmer Scott's heirloom tomato plant sale at Gore Place. 40 tomato varieties ready for your garden. This weekend in Waltham, goreplace.org. Clear skies overnight, a low around 50 degrees. Mother's Day tomorrow looks good, sunny with a high near 70. Right now in Boston, it is 78 degrees. WBUR supporters include BG Catering Concepts. Planning weddings, corporate events, and other significant celebrations to feel special. BGCateringConcepts.com. And Merrimack Repertory Theater with How High the Moon, the music of Ella Fitzgerald, a concert tribute to the First Lady of Song through May 21st, Tickets at MRT.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Texas, one person has been killed. At least 10 others were injured after a suspected EF-1 tornado touched down near Laguna Heights in the Rio Grande Valley early today. Officials say they worry the storm may have caused extensive damage to some structures. In Germany, a labor union representing more than 200,000 workers has canceled plans for a two-day strike after they say employers met one of their demands. That strike would have affected dozens 
dozens of rail companies as well as freight traffic. And in coastal Bangladesh, volunteers are using loudspeakers to urge people to seek shelter as the country braces for a powerful cyclone which is expected to make landfall tomorrow in Bangladesh and Myanmar. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scrippsnews.com forward slash TV. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. About a month ago, fighting erupted in Sudan. The story grabbed headlines. But I admit, even as someone who spends a lot of time consuming international news, it seemed complicated to understand why exactly this conflict had started. Ultimately, the way I've come to understand it is that this conflict is a power struggle between two opposing military leaders, two men fighting over who will ultimately control the country and its wealth of resources. The warring factions are led by Sudan's de facto military leader, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and his former deputy, Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Hameti. He's the head of the Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF. And neither leader wants to cede control to a civilian government. The fighting began about a month ago, and it's quickly become a story of broken ceasefires, constant clashes, mass displacement, and an exodus of refugees. Fighting that began in the capital, Khartoum, has now spread across the country. Over 600 people have died, thousands more are injured, and people are fleeing Sudan in droves. And there are fears that this conflict could spread to other countries in what is already a volatile region. For help in understanding the situation in Sudan, we reached out to three people who've been following the events in Africa, as well as the foreign policy decisions that are playing out here in the U.S. First, we've got NPR's Africa correspondent, Emmanuel Akinwotu. Hi, thanks for having me. We're also joined by NPR's Middle East correspondent, Aya Batrawi in Dubai. Hi. And NPR's Michelle Kellerman joins us from the State Department here in Washington, D.C. It's great to have you all. Thank you, Asma. So, Emmanuel, I want to begin with you. Uh, How did Sudan get to this point? I mean, if you could go back four years ago, there was a revolution in Sudan and a promise of a civilian government after years of military rule. So what happened? Well, primarily the stunning collapse of this country over the last four weeks, month of fighting. Over 500 people have died, thousands injured. Khartoum, you know, the capital of Sudan, has been the epicenter of this fighting. And we've seen residential areas, commercial areas, completely destroyed, taken over by fighters, shelled, uh, subjected to air raids. People have been dying while sheltering at home. You know, we spoke to the family of one woman, a doctor, Nagwa Khalid Hamad. She was killed in her living room by shrapnel. Several thousands of people have fled. The UN say up to 850,000 could end up fleeing. The humanitarian crisis has been appalling um, and tragic. You know, a lack of very basic medical supplies, only a few dozen health centers functioning across the entire country. So really just a truly desperate situation. You know, hundreds of thousands of people have fled already. I'm in Chad, uh, a country to the west of Sudan, um, where 
at you know several tens of thousands of people have fled to in a situation where Chad had already was already hosting about half a million refugees. And so it's an incredibly tense situation that is growing more severe by the day. Yeah, and I'll add to that that um, I've heard from multiple people in Egypt where the most number of Sudanese have fled that there have also been deaths at the border on Sudan's side because there's no aid agencies on the ground there and because the Sudanese government is just absent as far as offering medical care. I mean, I just got a message before we started this call from a, a woman who works at the UN who left. She's Sudanese and she said a family friend of theirs, their grandson was in their 20s. He died at the border from a heart uh, attack. And this is just maybe the sixth story I've heard like that in just the past week. I, I want to ask you more about just the sheer numbers of people who are trying to flee from the situation in Sudan. You've reported from Saudi Arabia where foreigners have been given safe passage from Sudan. What is the scene like? So I saw a lot of grief and exhaustion, um, but also relief uh, being in Saudi Arabia and being in safety because it feels like a completely different world when you get there. Um, and the Saudis are using their naval ships to evacuate thousands of foreigners from Sudan, but they're not taking in refugees. So these are people who have other passports, they can get out and they have short-term visas when they get to Saudi. But the U.S. also joined other countries in deploying their naval ships to help with these evacuation efforts across the Red Sea. And that's how I met Mohammed Kodak, a British Sudanese father who was with a toddler, his wife, and a newborn baby. He'd been on a U.S. naval ship about 12 hours crossing the Red Sea from Sudan until he got to Saudi Arabia. Here's what he told me it feels like to leave Sudan. Uh, it's a relief, but we all left people behind and friends and family and life, really. Overnight, things have changed, so it's pretty tough. Yeah, I was telling her earlier, you know, like... Even saying goodbyes to people, it's quite tough. Um, I left my, both my mother and father and my brother. So for a lot of people, it's not just fleeing to safety. It's also leaving behind friends and family and not knowing if you're going to see them again and not really being able to help them. Michelle, I want to bring you into the conversation here. You know, hearing the situation that Aya describes, I'm left wondering, what is the United States' involvement here? Where is the international community? Well, right now they're um, taking part in talks in, in Saudi Arabia just to get the gun silence long enough to get aid into the country. I mean, when this whole thing broke out, the first focus was evacuating the American embassy, getting Americans to safety, and then helping other Americans who were kind of stranded and caught in the crossfire. Now it seems like they're trying to get to some sort of ceasefire between the two generals and and mostly to get aid flowing because that's really, uh, you know, a crucial issue right now. So, Michelle, you're based at the State Department for NPR. And I do want to ask, you know, did the Biden administration, did the United States see this conflict coming? Well, critics say they should have. Sudan had been seen as this possible success story. It was a country that was coming out of decades of dictatorship with a lot of um, hopes. But the two, these two generals really upended the country's transition in October 2021. And, you know, I was talking this week to Jeff Feltman, who was the U.S. envoy at the time, and he says he came back to Washington calling for sanctions. It was a battle that he lost. You know, one argument against my position was, well, Jeff, if we put sanctions on these guys, not only do we cut off the channels, the people we need to get to, to get in line to put this transition back in track, but they aren't going to have an impact anyway, because the Gulf countries are not going to follow suit. And the assets that these guys have would be in the Gulf, not in the United States. 
So, you know, he's not really sure that it would have made a difference, but he does think that if the U.S. took stronger action against the generals, that it would have at least maintained some sort of credibility with Sudanese civilians who are really angry at um, the U.S. role here. Uh, The State Department is defending its approach, saying that the reality is you have to talk to the guys with the guns. U.S. officials thought they were getting close to a deal uh, between these two generals, but that really went up in flames in April. and, And now we see this kind of spiraling out of control. Just to add to that, Michelle, you know, that these talks going on in Jeddah at the moment, they've been going on for several days and we're not closer, at at least seemingly from to a humanitarian ceasefire. And we've obviously seen several ceasefires be announced and not really come to fruition. And even the talks themselves have also attracted a lot of criticism from civilian actors from civil society in Sudan who are saying that the fact that the talks exclude civilian actors um, and are primarily focused on the RSF and the army is a reflection of the same or it mirrors the same strategy that perhaps got us here in the first place. Michelle, you mentioned these talks in Saudi Arabia. Beyond that, what is the United States' role, would you say, in diplomacy in trying to find an end here in this conflict? Well, there are a couple of things. I mean, one is to try to make sure that um, rebels from surrounding countries, you remember Sudan neighbors a lot of very fragile states, uh, making sure that you're not seeing an influx in rebels and others trying to join this fight. The other is just trying to manage all of the countries that are involved in in Sudan. There are a lot of countries with interest there. You know, again, Jeff Feltman was telling me that other countries could actually be helpful, not just Saudi Arabia, but Egypt, United Arab Emirates and others. He says no one wants Sudan to collapse and become another Syria or Somalia. That's in no one's interest. The problem is that if if this conflict drags on longer, um, outsiders like those countries might become more tempted to try to tip the scale in favor of the general that they back in the crisis. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Aya, you're based in the Middle East, and we've been talking here about these talks that are occurring in Saudi Arabia right now. What sense do you have of the influence that some of the other countries in the Middle East are having on the conflict in Sudan? Well, if we take a step back, you look at Sudan and you see that it straddles Africa and the Middle East, and it's perched on the Nile and the Red Sea. So that makes it a very important country to a lot of countries. And also, you know, it looks to me like there are certain countries that want to see their side come to the negotiating table with the upper hand. And so there's an interest in actually this dragging on until that happens. I mean, Cairo wants to ensure a friendly government in Khartoum. It is their stability. They see this as a strategic red line that they that cannot be crossed. They cannot have a militia leader in charge in the capital Khartoum at their border. Um, so they support the army. And guess what? Many of those generals, including Burhan himself, trained in Egypt's military academies. So there are deep links between the two countries' militaries. Um, Ethiopia also borders Sudan. And Egypt and Ethiopia are at odds over Nile water rights. Um, But then there's also countries like we mentioned, like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. They have relied on Sudanese forces from Hamidi's fighters in their war in Yemen. And Saudi Arabia still has some of those forces in Yemen and pays the RSF for that. So there's real concern that the fighting is drawing in a lot of very influential players with very different and deep interests. Emmanuel, before we wrap up this conversation, 
I want to ask you about the human toll. I know we've spent a lot of time talking about geopolitics, right, and what this means kind of for a foreign policy context. But you've been in touch with people in the capital, Khartoum, the center of this conflict. Um, You've been in touch with those folks since the beginning of when this fighting started. What stories have stuck with you the most? There was a story of a doctor, Khadil Mohammed, who I spoke to last week, and she talked about she was at a hospital in Khartoum that she worked in. Uh, she um, was on the children's ward when the conflict started, and she wasn't able to leave the hospital. She was trapped in there as the fighting erupted. And she talked about, you know, floods of patients coming into the hospital, bullet wounds, shrapnel wounds. She, it, it just sounded absolutely bleak. Um, and she talked about how rapidly medical supplies diminished um, to the point where they didn't have basic medical uh, uh, equipment, didn't have anesthetic treatment. So they were having to make calls on whether to operate on someone, knowing that they'd probably die if they didn't operate on them, but they could die if they did. There's also the story of a woman, Dua Tariq, um, who is an activist, a member of a local resistance committee in Khartoum. And these are committees that sprung up during and, and some before the revolution and were incredibly important during the revolution and have been in the last few weeks, especially in the context of a real lack of humanitarian support in the country. They've been helping to pull resources, to um, be there for people, to coordinate help. Dua really st- sticks with me because of how, despite the circumstances she describes, is so determined, is so fearless. She talked about how her and a few others have been going out at night on the streets in Khartoum, spraying words, no to war, on the wars, and chanting so that people who are trapped at home can hear them. Oh, revolutionary, continue chanting. Tell the people of the neighborhood, I'm coming as long as I'm alive. You're safe, don't be scared. Also bringing songs to show you how to hold up. And don't forget, even when it gets dark and ugly, we're here around you, holding you down. And those words have stuck with me and their resilience and the, the small but incredible ways in which people find ways to make their voice heard, even in the midst of this just unreal situation, is kind of incredible. That was NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu, Aya Batrawi, and Michelle Kellerman. Coming up tomorrow on Sundays, All Things Considered, a dramatic change in U.S. immigration policy. For the last three years, a previously obscure emergency public health order allowed politicians to temporarily sidestep one of the most complicated issues in American politics. But with the end of Title 42, there's a lot of uncertainty about what happens next from both a policy and a political perspective. This is one of the biggest issues that Republicans want to use to undercut President Biden's competency. This is an issue that they feel they have ammunition on. We'll have that story tomorrow on All Things Considered. This is NPR News. The list of hormonal changes during pregnancy is a long one. Estrogen goes up. Progesterone goes up. We have changes to our cortisol. 
When I was pregnant, it was impossible to ignore how much hormones change in those long nine months. They're responsible for everything from physical symptoms like fatigue and nausea to emotional ones. But what about the hormonal impact on the brain? As it turns out, it is bigger than you might expect. Life Kit's Andy Tegel has more. The list of hormonal changes during pregnancy is a long one. Estrogen goes up progesterone goes up. We have changes to our cortisol systems and our prolactin systems and oxytocin. And and we talk a lot about what those things mean for the body. But we seldom talk about what they mean for the brain, says Chelsea Conaboy, a health and science journalist and author of the book Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood. When we do talk about them, there are a few stereotypical images that probably come to mind. Maybe the idea of baby blues, or perhaps the idea of mommy brain. Conaboy says forgetfulness during pregnancy is a real thing. But it is like one piece of a much bigger picture, and a picture that's really, like, powerful. This is not a neurodegenerative stage of life. You know, this is an adaptive one. Too often, says Conaboy, we're quick to be irritated by these hormonal changes or wave them away as frivolous or fleeting. And the reality is that pregnancy marks um, the beginning of a very distinct developmental stage of life that shapes our physical and our mental health for the long term. It's a process called matrescence, and it's a hormonal shift comparable in scope and scale to adolescence. Remember those oh-so-turbulent teen years? Yeah. Think that big and world-altering. So if you ever find yourself wondering, when will I get back to the old me? The truth is, like, it never returns to, to normal. We are, we are changed by this process and are changed for life. But that doesn't have to be a bad thing. Because what hormones actually do during pregnancy is nothing short of remolding the brain for parenthood. They are really priming the brain to be um, more plastic, more malleable, more changeable, um, and, and to be ready, essentially, to receive our babies. In fact, one study showed that parenting appears to be a neuroprotective experience over time, meaning it seems to slow the effects of brain aging. It makes sense. You know, we tell like older people to stay active, to stay social, to do crossword puzzles, and parenting is sort of like the biggest crossword puzzle you can imagine. And what's more, research suggests that the parental brain is better primed for empathy than non-parents. So our ability to actually read and respond to another person's mental state is essentially strengthened. And we also develop a greater capacity to regulate our own emotions in the process. Of course, that much change and adaptability doesn't always come easy. So the next time you find your keys in the freezer or feel the need to have a great big cry right in the middle of your workday, try to give yourself a break. Take it day by day and remember, change can be hard, but also good. The person you are is is changing in like a very fundamental way, right? No, you're not compromised by it. That like you're growing into a new way of being, a new, a new stage of yourself. For NPR's Life Kit, I'm Andy Tegel. This is NPR News. I'm John Carpilio, and thanks for choosing WBUR. Stay with us. Coming up at 6, it's been a minute. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering Wednesday, May 17th at City Space 
for a panel conversation exploring how to approach anxiety productively. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include Zoo New England with their Zootopia Gala, June 10th, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their mission to inspire care and action for wildlife. ZooNewEngland.org. Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Clear around 50 overnight, Mother's Day tomorrow, sunny near 70 degrees. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. During a public rally, North Carolina's Democratic governor vetoed legislation today that would have banned nearly all abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy. The veto launches a major test for leaders of the GOP-controlled General Assembly to attempt to override Governor Roy Cooper's veto. It's the last day for campaigning in Turkey before President Recep Tayyip Erdogan stands for re-election. It's being called his toughest race ever, and tensions have been on the rise as campaigning progressed. And police in Kenya exhumed 22 more bodies, believed to be members of the Good News International Church, bringing the death toll to 201. The church's leader reportedly told congregants to starve to meet Jesus. He's in custody. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. The TV shows Barry, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Succession are all wrapping up this month. And you know, ending a TV series is not easy. You have to wrap up the story, leave the character somewhere satisfying, give the fans what they want, you know, up to a point. It is a lot to balance. But sometimes a show will get it just right. So what are the best ever TV finales, and what makes a finale great anyways? Well, these are the kinds of questions the crew at NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast like to tackle. So here are the co-hosts, Stephen Thompson, Linda Holmes, and Aisha Harris, sharing their favorite finales. So I came down to a couple of picks, and I finally landed upon a show that I've only watched from beginning to end once, but has stuck with me even a few years later and is something I will definitely go back and rewatch at some point, which is The Americans, the very slow burn FX series about a couple of KGB agents who are living undercover in Virginia. Matthew Reese and Carrie Russell play Philip and Elizabeth Jennings. You know, they have that on the surface, perfect, idyllic suburban life in the 80s. But they are, of course, undercover spies. What I love about the finale is that it has everything that we've loved about the rest of the series. It takes its time. And this was a show that always took its time. And there is an 11-minute sequence where they are confronted by Stan Beeman, who was an FBI agent who lived right next door to them. 
They'd become really good friends, but Stan has finally figured it out and he confronts them at gunpoint. And the scene is just heartbreaking. And I want to just play a little brief moment here where Stan just kind of breaks down. You made my life a joke. You were my only friend in my, in my whole life. For all these years, my life was the joke, not yours. First of all, you can just hear the way he says, you made my life a joke. And after six seasons, you know that he feels that way. He feels completely duped. And then the rest of the scene is Philip and Elizabeth kind of alternating between BSing Stan and not being truthful about what they were doing. And the way that tension is played is just so, like, absolutely perfect. Like, one of the greatest scenes of all time. And it ends with, like, this planting of a seed that Stan's wife, Renee, might be one of them. Mm-hmm. And there's just all these other moments, like, whether it's Philip saying, we need to leave Henry, our other son, behind because he knows nothing about any of this and he has a chance to live a normal life. And Elizabeth lets off this, like, gasp slash guffaw that just, there's just so much inside that little noise that she makes and, and shows how, unlike... Philip, she has always been sort of the more detached and cool personality who was able to separate her morals from what her job was, which is to kill a lot of people and and service of the KGB. There's a moment where we have With or Without You playing by U2, and Paige gets off the train. She's supposed to be going with them to leave the U.S., and as soon as Elizabeth notices it, at that same exact moment, you hear Bono go, what? And it's just like, it is so dramatic. It's like maybe a little more on the nose than the Americans usually is, but it's such a gut punch. It's not just a great ending, but it's also probably one of the best episodes of the entire series. Mm -hmm. So when you can put it in your probably top five of that show itself, to me, that's what makes it such a great series finale. So that's my pick, the Americans. And after rewatching this episode again, I am so excited to go back and rewatch it all from the beginning because... Oh, my goodness. One of the greatest shows. I love it. Aisha, this was my first pick. You got to it first, and that's fair. But, man, everything you said was exactly correct. This was a slow burn series. You were expecting this finale to be explosive. It wasn't. It was all internal combustion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody dies. And again and again, we've seen this system chew up characters that we love, that we don't know. Both sides on this struggle are playing with human connections, exploiting human connections like love and lust and friendship as they as we heard in that clip and both sides are willing to destroy people to keep going which is why that moment when Paige steps off the train is so wrenching because it's something she chooses mm-hmm. it's a choice that none of these characters have had have been able to avail themselves of and that's why it is literally you gasp when you see that yeah Bono or not. (laughs) (laughs) I know. That is an exceptionally good series finale. Thank you very much, Glenn. So what did you pick as your favorite series finale, other than The Americans, of course? (laughs) My choice here is Newhart. Yes. Uh, I was wondering if someone was going to pick that. This sitcom ran on CBS from 1982 to 1990. Bob Newhart, legendary comedian, uh, whose series before that, The Bob Newhart Show, had run on CBS from 1972 to 1978. In that first series, he had played Bob Hartley, a Chicago psychologist. And in the newer one, the 80s one, he played Dick Loudon, a really kind of dull as dishwater how-to author and owner of an inn in Vermont, surrounded by a lot of quirky, kooky local townsfolk. The reason this finale is considered iconic is because of its use of the medium of television and how it plays to the audience 
in a way that hadn't really been done before. It's been done a lot since, but at that time it hadn't been done before. So here's what happens. After eight seasons, Newhart ends with him waking up on the set of the old Bob Newhart show. He is back in the Chicago apartment. He's sharing a bed with Suzanne Plachette, who played Bob Hartley's wife, Emily, on that old Bob Newhart show. And he tells her he had this weird dream where he ran an inn in a very quirky Vermont town. And now evidently to film this, they had kept the secret from the audience and from a lot of the crew. So when the lights come up and the Newhart audience is sitting in those seats and they see the Bob Newhart show set, you get a little bit of laughter. Honey. And then you get applause. Honey, honey, wake up. You, you won't believe the dream I just had. Now, if you're sitting it from the outside, if you've never seen the Bob Newhart show, what's happening is this audience is applauding light fixtures, they're applauding <laughs> wallpaper, a bookshelf headboard, but of course, they're not applauding that. They're applauding themselves for recognizing it. They are applauding the show for making a twist, but the laughter that starts as soon as you see the set has this very weird but very quick build. It's not explosive. It's confusion, recognition, realization, and then, frankly, self-congratulation. <laughs> it is the very definition of meta. Seconds later, when they realize that Suzanne Plachette is there too, she gets the explosive thing. She gets 15-second ovation all to herself, which is nice. All right, Bob. What is it? Because that's the moment, right, when it all does really come together and people are going, oh, I see. I get it now. But the thing is, that's what people remember. It is so big and so clever that that last minute and a half overshadows not just the finale episode, but I would say eight seasons of show before that. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that there's something to be said for a series finale that is essentially the show's entire reputation. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right that it started off as a very down the middle sitcom. So this makes sense to me. Yes. All right. Stephen Thompson, what is your pick for best series finale? The criteria that I took into this process was favorite, degree of difficulty, <laughs> Okay. Payoff of the world building, true to the overall story, and a true ending. I love I love a true ending. I don't necessarily want my favorite shows to be rebooted if they end on that perfectly satisfying note. And the one I picked is fairly recent, January 2020, The Good Place. Ah. It's one of my favorite shows of all time, not just of recent years. An extremely thematically ambitious, warm, and constantly surprising comedy. If you have not seen The Good Place, first of all, don't let me spoil it. Go and watch all four seasons uh, right now. But the, the show, for, for those who need a recap, I guess, Kristen Bell, William Jackson Harper, Jamila Jamil, Manny Jacinto are four people who have died and they have been put through a series of afterlife experiences controlled by a demon played by Ted Danson. By the time you get to the finale, the show has resolved that all of these people are living happily ever after in paradise. And they've even in a preceding episode, sorted out that one of the central problems with a perfect paradise-based afterlife is that because it never ends, you're just drifting off and like existence becomes meaningless. And so they've established leading into this finale that there is a way for you to walk through a portal and end your afterlife, which is a really heady concept and one that doesn't necessarily track as a happy ending. In this finale, it is wrapping up the afterlives 
of these four people. And they don't all decide to walk through the door, but several do. And it handles it in a way that feels so true to these characters, allows you to gather up just the sheer depth and breadth of their afterlife experiences while still establishing that part of what is giving meaning is that they have reached a satisfying end to their existence. And so it is a really philosophically rich story, but it's still along the way grappling with conflict within that. Chidi and Eleanor are in love in the afterlife, and Chidi wants to leave it before Eleanor does. And how they sort that out and the conversation that they have over one of the most beautiful needle drops, Spiegel im Spiegel by Arvo Pert is the needle drop for the scene in which Chidi kind of explains to Eleanor some of the meaning behind it all. There's one conception of death for a Buddhist. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. Where it's supposed to be. It is very hard to talk about this without crying. It is even harder to watch it without crying. My favorite ending to one of my very favorite TV shows of all time. I'm so glad someone mentioned it <laughs> because it, <laughs> yeah. it really is. Like you, I was also very, very skeptical about how it would end. And ooh, man, it feels great, but also sad. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It is exactly that. And I salute you, Stephen, for getting through it. I thought we were going to lose you there in the middle, but you know, <laughs> you did great. You did great, buddy. What I chose could not be a harder turn from the finale of The Good Place in that it is sort of the anti the finale of The Good Place. I chose the finale of Veep. Ah. You know, it's funny. I do not always feel like I am the natural audience for Veep. It is so incredibly acidic. It is so incredibly gnarly and vulgar. <laughs> With that said, you know, if you didn't watch it, Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays the vice president of the United States. She is an incredibly craven, awful person surrounded by other craven, awful people who are her staff. You follow her over several seasons as she tries to escape this terrible existence as the vice president. A bunch of different twists and turns take her to a point where in the finale, she is uh, at the convention trying to get the nomination for president. And she goes through this terrible trial because she's trying to be nominated while there's an incredible scandal brewing off to the side. And you keep thinking... Is this scandal going to get her? Do I want her to become president? Like, what is the satisfying finale here? I find that in finales, 98% of the time, a show will warm itself up 15 degrees in the finale, at least. Mm. It will give itself a little bit more of like, in the end, everybody loved each other and was friends, right? Mm. That is not what this show does remotely at all. They put their foot on the accelerator to hell because what happens in this finale, and again, if you have not seen it, be warned, her faithful aide this entire time is Gary, played by Tony Hale, who carries her bag. All he wants to do is please her and help her. He's given his life to her. All she does is abuse him and he still loves her. And there have been these like very, very tiny moments where they've allowed her to be kind to him for 10 seconds. And then she always immediately is horrible to him. But it's this very like abusive employment relationship. And 
what she does is she sets him up to take the fall for her scandal. And the last thing you see of him in that part of the story, he's being dragged away by the FBI because mm -hmm. she has set him up. It is the most vicious, awful, monstrous thing she's done in the entire show. And they simply refuse to change who she is in the finale. Then they go 20 plus years later, her funeral, where, you know, you get to see what has kind of become of all the people. And in a way, it does give you a little bit of that typical satisfying finale where you kind of get to see like many years later, here's what happened. Uh -huh. You know, some of it is what you would expect. Her staffers have turned into middle-aged jerks instead of youngish jerks. Her, her daughter is watching her funeral on television and serving margaritas. <laughs> but then at the very end, they show that Gary, who is presumably now out of whatever legal trouble she got him into, he looks terrible. But at the very end of her funeral, he comes up to her casket and says, You'd hate the flowers, but I, I brought the Dubonnet. <laughs> which is exactly the kind of thing he always worried about for her. You would hate the flowers. But he brought her favorite lipstick and he puts it on top of the casket. In a way, you can find a note of warmth in it that she didn't make him not decent, right? Yeah. He yeah. stayed the person that he was. But it's a terrible, terrible, monstrous thing that she's done to him. And he has suffered whatever consequences. I find this finale irresistible because of all the things that it refuses to do. It refuses to make warmth and love the ending because it wouldn't be the right ending for this show. This show, you got to keep everybody horrible until the last minute because that's the origins of this show. And for that ice cold bravery, I chose Veep. Excellent choice. A show with the courage of its convictions stuck to it. It did warm up from Kelvin zero <laughs> to Kelvin 0.15. And I, I am here for it. I love that ending. That was Stephen Thompson, Linda Holmes, and Aisha Harris sharing their favorite TV show finales on the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. 